This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I really hope everyone is listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And food tech has always been really interesting. I think even from olden days watching sci-fi movies and looking at the future of food and Jetsons, magic microwaves, and all those kinds of things. But here in 2021, about a year and a half into the global pandemic, food and technology has never been more essential and more in view to the general public, not just people in the industry. So I'm really happy today to bring together some people who are looking at how food and technology can improve what we eat and maybe improve the world a little bit. We are taking a look at the Food Niche Tech Summit, which is put on by the Global Health Institute. And they are having a virtual conference later this month, May 26th to the 27th. And it is going to take a look at food, food as medicine and innovating a healthier food system, which I think everyone is interested in. Joining us today, we have Julia Olonaju, who is the executive director of the Food Niche Global Health Institute. And we also have Ethan Soloviev, who is the chief innovation officer of a company, How Good, called How Good, which is probably the largest uh, product sustainability database on the planet right now, which is really fascinating. So the first question that I would put out to both of you, um, it's a two-day conference and you're going to be talking to a lot of thought leaders, policymakers, entrepreneurs of different types of food tech companies. And the first question that I really would love to tackle is, if we're talking about innovating a healthier food system, Julia, how do you describe healthier food system? Ethan, same question would be to you also. When we talk about a healthier food system, are we talking about healthy for the planet? Are we talking about building a system that delivers healthier foods to consumers? Um, how do we even start to define um, healthier food system and what the actual goal is? Julia? Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me. I'm uh, really excited to be here. And to your question, uh, it's something very, very important for us to uh, prioritize at this point. Um, creating a healthier food system. And what does that mean? It means creating a food system um, that puts consumer well-being 
at the forefront. Of course, not just the consumer well-being alone, also the, um, the health of the environment is very, very important because if we want to support our population in the next 10 years, we need to take care of the environment we live in. So one key thing is very, very crucial. Food industry leaders need to start rethinking the way we approach what we put on the shelves. And what does that mean? It means that we think about the components we put in this food, in this product we put on the shelf. Think about all the different elements and how it interacts with the human body to impact their health. Today, um, we have different reports um, from CDC, from different health organizations, helping us to understand the state of the, the human population here in the U.S. Um, I'm just focusing on the U.S. for now, but it's something, it's a global um, concern. But what we see is in the U.S., we have more than 50% of adults in America struggling with preventable chronic diseases that are related to poor eating patterns. So when you have this kind of situation, you know that it's not something you just um, think or pray about. It's something you do something about changing the dynamics, making it easier for people to eat well and live healthier lives. So when you have to your question, that is how I think about a healthier food system. I see the need and also uh, um, a very strong need to take action. Ethan, how would you describe or define a healthier food system? Yeah, I think one of the first things to think about is that we shouldn't think of the food system as separate from the rest of life and the rest of the world. Um, and so we're always thinking about food systems on a spectrum from the most what we would call degenerative, the most damaging, you know, the highest polluting, the most greenhouse gases, the greatest uh, amount of water being used, the highest number of people in difficult, maybe even oppressed uh, situations working around the world in agriculture, that's on the degenerative end. And we see that moving on a spectrum all the way towards what has been called sustainable, which is sort of like a, a midpoint. It's sort of like a, a net zero in the middle. We've been reducing carbon footprint. We've been you know, decreasing pesticides. That's kind of heading towards sustainable. And that's good. That net zero point, that is a good goal. We should head towards it. But how good doesn't really think that's enough. We want to go beyond sustainable to what we call regenerative. This is where it's net positive. You're not just reducing the carbon footprint. You're capturing carbon in the soil, in the trees, in the ecosystem. You're not just doing less harm and getting people to, to a minimum wage. You're actually lifting them up and supporting their empowerment and agency in their farms, in their communities. So we're aiming for this net positive regenerative side of the spectrum because Ultimately, you know, sustainability, net zero, if you were on your deathbed and somebody said, well, what kind of what kind of impact did you have in your life? And you said ah, about net zero. That's not really enough. That's not what we're going for. And so how good's thinking about the food system ecologically, socially, culturally, animal welfare, uh, processing level of nutrition and health. All of that, we want to move it beyond sustainability into this net positive regenerative side of the spectrum. So for you, the definition of food system is just the entire human living civilization system. Yeah, but not even human. <laughs> See, we just did it again. You centered oh, okay, humans. There we go. It's mm -hmm. not about humans, right? It's, it's, it, we are part of this larger system, but I think it's really seeing the whole earth as a living organism and yet at the same time being super practical and saying, what can I do? To Julia's point, what am I purchasing on the shelf? What is a company putting on the shelf and how do I 
take a step-by-step approach, but bring that whole system towards regeneration. So that sounds like a lot to tackle in a two-day virtual conference. <laughs> um, but I'll ask Julia, you have been um, having these conferences for a few years now. Um, you did not have one last year because of the pandemic, so you did not have one in 2020. But talk to us a little bit about, are, are these the topics that you have been looking at and bringing people together to discuss and attempt to solve um, for the past several years? Or is this a, a new shift? Have you changed the perspective a little bit um, given the year we had in 2020? Or has this just been an ongoing and it's just the current iteration of the questions that you're asking and the issues that are trying to be solved? Uh, well, thank you for that question, a uh, great one. Um, this year is a bit different uh, because, of course, the, the past 15 months we've experienced uh, the, a situation we've never uh, faced before, uh, at least in our lifetime. And we've learned a lot. We've seen the vulnerability, vulnerabilities in our food system. We've seen, uh, we've seen some of the issues we, we've, uh, we've um, never faced before. So all those issues that we observed um, in the past 12, 15 months, shaped the kind of um, conversations we're having today, I mean, in this uh, conference. So, for instance, last year, for the first time, some of us um, saw scarcity. Um, you get to the shelves and there is nothing. In the past um, in the past few months, we've also seen that, um, well, let me put it this way. Research has shown that people that are obese were more predisposed to hospitalization and mortality uh, due to COVID. Of course, we know that obesity is a challenge that we've uh, we faced in this, um, uh, in, especially in the US, but now some things are more pronounced because we see the impact, we see the loss, we feel the pain. And if there's any time for us to take action, for us to talk and, and form collaborations, the time is now. So. To, to your point on what conversations we've been having, we've been having um, um, different uh, conversation in prior conferences where we talk about uh, discoveries happening in the scientific communities and how we can accelerate um, bringing those to, to the marketplace and bringing innovation uh, to the marketplace and things like that. But this year, the conversation is a little bit different. We want to focus more, or we're focusing more on how we can leverage different um, technology um, innovation and data that we're collecting and we're, what we're learning, how we can leverage the scientific discoveries, how we can leverage all this expertise that we have to help improve the way people eat and the way we treat our environment. It's focused on both, but um, it's focused with a renewed energy based on some of the things that's happened in the past 12 and 15 months, 12 to 15 months. It does seem uh, in hindsight and looking at sort of the um, the topics that the food tech community and has been interested in. It has always been more environmental, feeding the planet, healthier, using food, um, you know, as medicine or to heal your body or biohacking and, you know, that type of thing. But the, perhaps the past 15 months has given it um, a sense of urgency that we did not have before and almost been a um, proof point of actually how important these things are because we have seen um, 
in uh, very distressing ways how important general overall health is for people, for the planet, and, and for our animal systems. Ethan, how good has been around for more than a decade? And you've been tracking the um, you know, sustainability touch points and characteristics of, of companies and products for quite some time. Is this a new conversation for you at How Good? Is this just a continuation of what you've been saying all along? I believe you're current, you currently track 247 impact attributes, which is amazing. Um, have you added some new ones over the past 15 months? Uh, it's almost like it's supercharged now and we're adding more almost every week. I want to make one comment about what you said. I actually don't think the food tech has been focused on the beautiful, wonderful things that you said entirely. Oh. I think a lot of food tech has actually been focused on ag tech efficiency and improving the sort of um, <clears throat> the capability of large scale industrial agriculture to rapidly extract value from ecosystems. Um, and I think part of that drive to efficiency is some of what has actually led to the problems that Julia was speaking to and that you're sort of noting have, have been brought really to the fore during the COVID pandemic. So um, I think there is a bit of a, a reckoning that is, it's still sort of shaking and reverberating throughout the food system space, especially for some of the larger uh, companies that produce the vast majority of food that's eaten in the United States and actually a significant ar amount around the world. While at the same time, there has been a, a shock to the people who don't necessarily get food off the supermarket shelves, is the term we've used a few times here. A huge amount of the food in the world is actually grown by smallholder farmers, peasant farmers, and you know people who have less than five acres of land around the world still grow a huge amount of food. And in some ways, they were shocked not by the inability of their, their own you know, home gardens and their own food systems to produce food, but by the disruption in the massive, super efficient global supply chains um, that have sort of kept things going and gotten more and more intense and technological and efficient in the previous years. So really for how good and you know how good has this massive database is the world's largest uh, product and ingredient sustainability database with over 2 million products 247 different sustainability attributes and metrics as you mentioned uh, 33,000 different ingredients chemicals and materials um, in the database, what we're seeing is just a very, very quickly increasing demand for this information. Um, consumers, yes, but especially from the companies who are getting more and more pressure um, from individuals, but also from their investors to shape up, to move towards that, you know, at least sustainable, if not regenerative side of things. And we have some of the largest companies in the world, um, Walmart, Cargill, General Mills, Pepsi are all putting out these um, basically proclamations. We're going to head towards regenerative agriculture because we see the, the need for it. So the demand for how goods database, the demand for our insights and our, our software platform have been growing very, very quickly. Uh, and we're adding in new information. We're adding in metrics that are about carbon opportunity cost, about microbiome health and, and well-being and nutrition for individuals. So we're, we're very quickly building out what we have because the demand is so high. So explain to us really quickly what I mean, we all know what a product is, so we all can understand what 2 million unique products means. Um, we also understand what an ingredient is, so we can understand 
more than 33,000 ingredients. But explain to us what an impact attribute is and uh, tell us just, you know, for, for frame of reference, what some of the first ones were back in the day in 2007 when it started off and what some of the recent ones are that you've added since the pandemic. Okay, great. So um, the best way to think about this, I described that spectrum at the beginning from the, you know, the most damaging to the most sort of healing and positive. And so our metrics look across that spectrum. So I'll take one um, that Julia also, you know, kind of spoke to, which is about processing. How highly processed is my the ingredient in my in my food if i you know got an egg from my chickens from my farm this morning which is what i had for breakfast uh that is minimally processed almost no energy was used except you know frying it in the pan uh for my wife and daughter like that was that was all the processing that happened but there are some other ingredients i could have for example maybe put a, a hot sauce on it that had high fructose corn syrup in it which has a huge amount of processing, right? It's a massively, it's only made in a few places in the world because you need a huge factory running all the time to go from corn uh, to a high fructose corn syrup. And so there's a spectrum there from the most minimally processed to the most, <laughs> you could say, massively processed. And an early um, attribute that we put, that was sort of a mark along that spectrum was to say, is this a minimally processed food? If I'm buying broccoli, yes, it's minimally processed. Uh, if I'm buying flour, yes, it's been milled, but still compared to that high fructose corn syrup, uh, that sugar, um, that soy lecithin in your chocolate bar, it's still the wheat flour itself would be minimally processed. So that was an attribute is just a yes, no. It says, is this minimally processed? Yes or no. So that was one that we tracked from the beginning, you know, 14 years ago. Um, a newer one that is sort of gaining prominence right now, uh, it uses a different spectrum. It looks at the spectrum of, for example, greenhouse gas emissions to say, is this producing a huge amount of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide? Is this really contributing to uh, global climate change, climate disruption? Um, so that's on the sort of uh, degenerative end. And then on the regenerative end, it wouldn't be net zero. Again, it would be actually capturing carbon. So on my farm, the apple trees and the sheep that run under them and the chicken that run behind them, they help to actually capture carbon, put it into the tree and put it into the soil. So when you're looking at a product, which is made up of ingredients, a new attribute that we're, that we're using is one that's called climate friendly. And that basically says, is this product on the lower end, is it sort of, you know, better than 75% of everything that's out there in terms of the carbon footprint uh, the climate, the greenhouse gas footprint that it has. If it is yes, then we say, yes, it's climate friendly. And if it's not, you know, if it's in with the other 75% of food products that are out there, then we'll say, nope, this one's not climate friendly. So that's an example of two attributes uh, that we track in our system. And you're tracking currently 247. There's 247 <laughs> of those across many different metrics. And um, the fun part is basically <laughs> keeping track of it all and then get, putting it into the hands both of um, brands. You know, some of the largest food brands in the world are our partners. Danone, Dannon uh, is one of our partners. They're using this system to understand the impact of their yogurts, of their soy milk, of their almond milk. Um, and then also retailers partner with us to help communicate this information. So uh, we work, for example, with um, Giant Foods uh, and some of the others under the Ahold Delhaes banner um, so that they can understand these attributes and help people search by them online. 
Really fascinating. And it's interesting to consider that companies are now, in some respects, reverse engineering their products a little bit to get to a better product. Um, you know, we always hear about, you know, the large CPG companies doing R&D and they want to make the chip um, more addictive and salty and crisp. And what's that mouthfeel on, you know, the bite when you have uh, a chip or a candy bar or something like that. So there's all those, um, you know, consumption traits and, you know, f- food traits for when we're going to eat it. Um, but to be able to use a database of information and, you know, something that you and I talked about um, on our call earlier was using the information to sort of uh, evaluate ingredients and in things. You know, if you use a walnut from one place, how does that scale in terms of your metrics if you're using an almond from California or, you know, a pecan from the South? So it's interesting that. You can make choices not just based on the the taste and the cost and the desirability of the product from a tactile sense, but then from a, what the impact is on the chain all the way back, which yeah, I mean, is fascinating. I w- and, I, and I would say also it hasn't been very possible until recently, and there's been a lot of advances in science that have made people be able to do it, but it's still, it's still hard. That's why we're finding such demand for our platform is because we're gathering all this information for all these ingredients and putting it in one place in a format that you can just literally point and click and type in your ingredients and get the results instantaneously. And that level of of data and sort of seeing back into the history of the ingredients hasn't been available as quickly before, but there is a a huge desire from it that even the biggest food companies in the world, which are sometimes maligned, um, do have a sincere desire for it. Partly that's because consumers are demanding it. And so for all the, you know, your millions of listeners, this is important for consumers to continue demanding sustainability, transparency, nutrition, health, and insights into that. That is really important, but it's not only that. I think that sometimes companies use that as an excuse for why they aren't moving faster in this direction. And what we're finding with our partners is that inside these companies, they have a genuine desire to do good for the planet, to do good for the people. And they're investing more and more in the innovations that, just like you said, keep flavor front and center, but also add in social equity uh, that add in, even in some cases, undoing the terrible effects of systemic racism in the food system. They're saying, we want to do that and we want to make it, you know, carbon sequestering and we want to make it good for animals. So there's, there is real desire within these companies, but at the same time, it's a bit of, in many cases, a slow ship to turn. And so the, the continued demands and activism and sort of, um, ask from the people of the world for greater transparency and sustainability Working both together, I think we can make some real change. One of the things that's so interesting to me is just from a a casual survey of the press releases that I get, of the articles that I read online, of the um, conference topics that I read and um, speaker seminar descriptions that I read, we we are certainly in the age of being very concerned about the environment. And I'm in in complete and wholehearted agreement and am for taking care of our planet and everything that lives on it. It's obviously critically important because this is our home and the place that we live. 
But it's always been very interesting to me that environmentalism and the planet and water use and regenerative farming and, and all those types of things have become very popular. Um, we have a lot of Netflix shows on them and articles and books and conferences. And every now and again, we get an article about slave labor and child labor in terms of the global food chain. And those pop up and people get upset and then they go away. And it's interesting to me that, you know, the juxtaposition of just the voracious uh, desire and drive on the environmental and planetary issues that the, you know, slave labor, fair labor, child labor practices aren't as front and center. It's sort of amazing to me. It's like, because I don't think anyone is for slave labor. And I definitely think if you had a choice between saving a burning tree or a child, you would probably save the child. But it's interesting that that hasn't bubbled up into the, you know, the, the general media scope and the general, you know, customer awareness or consumer awareness. Um, you know, the whole rise of all of the plant-based um, animal the plant-based products to substitute for animal products is, you know, all about water consumption and saving the planet. But I, I'm I'm surprised and I'm always curious as to why people aren't a little more voracious about saving people. Mm. Yeah, and <laughs> Do, I, I, I'd be curious to hear Julia's thoughts on this as well. I mean, I, I have a couple, but Julia, go ahead. Yeah, um, so Jennifer's point, that's um, absolutely true. And one of the things I've observed is whatever the media is amplifying, people gravitate towards. So there's been a lot of interest in um, um, the, the saving the planet and doing um, doing things differently, being, being mindful of the welfare of animals and things like that. And because there's been a lot of advocacy in that area uh, that's gained a lot of media attention, People are, are gravitating more and more towards this. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But we need more people to speak up about the concerns about people's health as well. We need more people to talk about the need, the strong need to uh, address nutrition um, um, education, in introducing that into schools. We need more people to talk about the number of people, the percentage of people that are struggling in America, not even America alone, um, I was speaking with someone recently. I realized that um, in Spain, they have even higher numbers when you talk about um, obesity. And I, I feel like there's some of these issues that are, are really, really uh, pressing. But we're not having as much coverage. We're not having as much uh, people talk about it because there isn't um, there isn't as much uh, media attention in that direction, or maybe because it's just been air for so long, we're used to it. But um, with what we've experienced in the past year, there is a need for us to talk more about these issues. And the more we talk about it, the more we'll see people think about what they can do to solve the problem. And yes, people, some people are actually working on solving the problem, but the more we talk about it, the more people uh, would tune in in that direction as well. I totally agree, Julia. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. And I think um, making it front and center and continuing to is really important to us. I mean, there's some estimates, 40 million people in modern slavery in the world today. Um, and despite decades of, of work on it, especially in some sectors that are, for, you know, the delicious side of food in chocolate and coffee, it still remains a significant 
problem around the world. I think some of the reason to your question, Jennifer, that it doesn't sort of stay front of mind, right? An, an article hits the New York Times, an article hits the Guardian, um, and everybody thinks about it for a little bit and then sort of slinks away from it. I think there's there's two kind of reasons that I can see why that's happening. One of them is, and this is sort of cynical, but it's pretty hard to make a, a positive marketing claim uh, by the companies who are doing this about not having child labor. So you couldn't so much put a sticker on your pack and said, hey, there's no child labor in the supply chain. Um, that's because then everybody thinks, wait a minute, I don't want it. Child there labor was, is, there is. Well, the product okay. next to it has exactly. it. Because so then we, it starts a really uncomfortable conversation. Exactly. And then that leads into the second reason uh, that I think, which is that people, especially in the industrialized world, especially people of European heritage, um, have a lot of guilt around the oppression that they and their ancestors cause. I mean, the reason it's called supply chains is because, unfortunately, we used to chain people up and make them produce our sugar and our rum and our timber and our food. And so there's this, this guilt that people have not taken the time to face, to metabolize, to acknowledge, to work you know, consistently on healing from that, that keeps it something, oh, I just don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to know that my products are still causing that in the world. This is this is important and takes consistent effort, not just from governments, not just from companies, uh, but from all of us, I think, as individuals um, to hold the, those in the global food supply system accountable for making progress on this. Voting with our dollars and other monetary instruments. Um, I do think that would you say then, I mean, Ethan, the, the whole marketing point of view is a very interesting one. Are we sort of trying to check that box and be conscientious of it in a way that's less distressing by calling it fair trade or fair wage or using those types of descriptors when we talk about how products are produced? I want to give it back to Julia because I know she wanted to put something in there. But I would basically say those are the, the best ones. The global fair trade organizations, Fair for Life, Fair Trade America, Fair Trade International, Fair Trade USA. They're doing great work and, and also the work on the, the Global Living Wage Coalition and working to bring people to living wages and living income. This is really important and the positive side of things, but they're hard to achieve. It takes work. It takes investment. And so it's not a sort of a, a quick, easy thing to do, um, but they have made significant progress, but still not enough, you know, to get uh, child labor out of the cocoa. Um, so more work needed. I think those are useful directions to go in, but we, we need a lot more. And yeah, I just wanted to see what Julie was going to add there. Yeah, sure. Um, I absolutely agree with you. And um, yeah, the, tackling this issue will be um, so it's something that's not um, uh, cheap to come by. But I feel like the more advocacy groups um, that get involved in this uh, will be will, will find a lot more success in this direction. By that, I mean um, there are a lot of people that are aware of these issues of child labor, but they, um, we need to rally around them, support them, and have them speak up more. So for instance, um, so there's some, there's some um, stories we've heard that you'd be surprised how come this did not make the headlines. Because the truth is people listen. People listen and people support uh, meaningful causes as well. So if we come out and if um, um, this uh, stories of child labor 
keep coming out and people hear of things like this happening, there will be effort in that direction to tackle the issues. Number one, the companies themselves do not want their stories out in the open. Nobody wants bad press for their companies. So the fact that you're even putting it out there, you don't even need an advocacy group to uh, confront anybody doing invo- being involved in in um, in these practices. Once they know the story is out, they, they change their practices. They know that they're being exposed and it's bad for business. So the bottom line I'm trying to put out here is it's important for us to keep speaking up. And when we see things and when we can capture things, we, we put it out there, definitely change will start. Change starts with somebody stepping out and saying something. Well, we are all about telling stories and talking on Heritage Radio Network. We've been on the air since 2010 We produce more than 35 live shows a week on lots of different topics, politics, farming, fermenting, kids' school lunch, and this one. And we um, keep these conversations going out of the generosity of most of our members support us, who are listeners like you folks at home, grants, and underwriters like this one. Stay with us and see who is helping us put this story out into the world. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy to use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. We are talking about the Food Niche Tech Summit. It is a virtual conference happening later in May, May 26th to the 27th. Um, It is going to be two days of looking at food as medicine and innovating a healthier food system. It's going to be groups of entrepreneurs, thought leaders, policymakers, and people who are interested in figuring out how we can do better so we can all live better. If you are interested in checking out the conference and learning more about it, go to gfhii.org. Um, you can also go to register at gfhisummit.com. You'll find the speakers, the agenda, and all the registration information. If you want to follow along on social media, you can find them at Food Nisher 
F-O-O-D-I-N-I-C-H-E-R. We are talking with Julia Olonaju, who is the executive director and the creator of the summit and program, and one of the participants who will be talking on the leveraging technology to promote transparency, sustainability, good quality products in the food industry farm to fork, is Ethan Soliev, who is the chief innovation officer of How Good, which is the largest product sustainability database in the world. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, it's really kind of a fascinating thing. You can go to howgood.com um, and you can follow them on social media at How Good Ratings. Um, one of the things that Julie and I talked about um, before the show was, um, you know, in terms of bringing a group like this together, what types of uh, topics were front of mind. And something that she said that was very interesting to me uh, was, you know, companies are always looking forward. It takes a lot of time to produce products, to create them, produce them, and get them on to the shelves for people to consume them. So companies are used to working in, in long timelines. Companies are always interested in knowing what consumers are going to want. But this year, at this conference, trying to figure out what consumers will want post-pandemic is really front of mind. And Julia, I would be um, interested to know how your constituency is defining post-pandemic as a point in the future for a business to be driving towards. Thank you, Jennifer. So um, post-pandemic... Um, is something that is not clearly defined at this point because currently we're still in the pandemic and how exactly things will look in six months from now, um, 12 months from now, we're not sure. So one of the key things we're, de we're one of the clear ways in which we are defining this is what, what was before the pandemic and what is now? So, for instance, we did a study uh, trying to understand how people's uh, perspective uh, to food has changed in the past few years. We did. Um, we wanted to understand. We wanted to understand especially the impact of this COVID crisis on people's food purchasing decisions, on um, on their perspective about nutrition, taste, flavor, and what what the role those play in their uh, purchasing decisions. And we asked different questions trying to understand where they are now compared to where they were before uh, the pandemic. So that is a clear comparison you can make. Before the lockdown, before uh, the crisis we faced, where were you? What were you thinking? How are you doing things? And now. So a lot of things have changed in the past 12 months for many people. So you might say this is post-pandemic. You might say this is still the pandemic. Whatever you define it, well, whatever way you choose to define it, the bottom line is, so many things have changed in the past 12 months that um, has affected the way people do things, the way people approach meals, what they prioritize and what they care about. So um, a lot of people have felt the pain of losing loved ones. A lot of people have had to uh, think twice about uh, what they're exposing themselves to uh, by going to a party or by going to the mall or by going somewhere. So there are different things that have happened in the past 12 months that change the way we do things and the way we think about what we want to do or what we want to eat. So in, in a sense, you could say before pandemic and 
uh, now could be described as post-pandemic, or it could be still, some will say it's post. Um, we were on a call yesterday and someone said, oh, for us, this is post-pandemic. Pandemic is old story, you know? So uh, for some people that say, no, this is still pandemic, it's still going on. So uh, it's very, it's not absolutely um, uh, defined what we, I mean, what we'll call post-pandemic at this point, but when you think about data and when you think about analysis, we can see what happened before COVID started and now uh, is a very good place to draw um, comparisons. Well, that's interesting that you make that, that we can start to make a definition based on defining what came before. Um, and sometimes we think, oh, I have to explain the thing that I have right now, but sometimes you can start to describe it by what it's not <laughs> or, you know, creating a different kind of framework to hone in on an idea. Obviously, consumer habits change and products we eat change and what dinner looks like has changed over time. Perhaps the difference is simply that when we need to look at what a you know, defining moment was or the point in time that changed our habits or if there was a defining moment or innovation, we have to do it um, in hindsight looking back because a lot of times these changes happen gradually. Um, the TV, the TV dinner, microwave, you know, all those types of things where we don't necessarily realize it until after. But the pandemic is such a defining line and such a clear demarcation of before and after that perhaps it makes it a little bit easier for us to all um, evaluate what happened before and then what's coming after, even though after is still very much uh, fluid and constantly evolving. Right. And, and the truth is, when you think about um, scientific research, for instance, when we when we carry out studies, we we'll want to say, OK, we're introducing maybe like a stressor or we're introducing something different to a situation. And we want to see what the effect will be, the effect of that um, stressor that you've introduced. What is the, what is that effect on, let's say, an individual or a patient or something? So you might introduce that stressor for five months, for um, six months. And then after six months, you check what the effect will be. So by the end of six months, you've removed that stressor and you now measure whatever uh, metrics you're trying to uh, monitor and, and see what the difference is before the stressor and after uh, the stressor. So right now, um, the pandemic is still here, but it wasn't as stressful for uh, many people as it was um, last year. And some people will tell you that they're still very much in the eat of things. But the common um, denominator we could all tie things together with is that before the pandemic, we had a lifestyle that we were all used to. And now we've all adjusted to a new lifestyle, a new normal. Some of us had struggled with wearing masks at some point. Now some people are just so used to it that they've forgotten that they still have it on and they're looking for it. So um, whatever the stressor is, uh, that was really prominent last February or last March when it all started, people adjusted in a different way. And now going back to normal is not even the, the same normal we had before the pandemic anymore. So a lot of things have changed and we can clearly measure uh, a difference before the pandemic and now. Uh, uh, and of course, even the data we collected show that clearly that we can. and. Also, 
some of the uh, panel panelists we have um, at the conference, they have topics and they have um, companies that use artificial intelligence to monitor what is going on on social media, what people are leaning towards, what people are buying and what people really want. And one of the conversations we're having is how much has changed during the last 12 months and what they're seeing and what, what people are actually looking for in terms of the kind of food they want to eat. It was very, very obvious that the pandemic that happened in the last um, few months changed what people are gravitating towards. And of course, a lot of people are gravitating towards some things that they, they believe will boost their health, will support their immune health or support their um, support their overall health. But a lot of metrics are being generated. A lot of data is being gathered over the past few months that make it very clear that we had a different, a completely different scenario before the pandemic. And the reality we face today is also very different. It's interesting that we use the word normal about going back to a previous point in time. And prior to the pandemic, if somebody was nostalgic for a period of time that came before or wanted to go back to a different period of time, going back to a different decade or, you know, the 90s fashion famously goes back and relives other decades over and over again, we would not use the word normal. We would say, oh, I would love to go back to before I was in college or when I still lived at home or when I lived here or when, you know, I had a child or didn't have a child or before we had the dog or before we lived on the farm. And you would use a descriptor of what the difference was between the moment in time you want to be in and the moment in time you're in now. It's, it's interesting to me that the word we choose and the word that people predominantly choose is normal when they mean going back to something else. But it will be interesting to see if everybody does a complete rewind and goes back to that period in time or if we just continue to evolve into new, new things based on the constantly shifting circumstances we're dealing with. Um, it is hard to predict. It is hard to predict things. Um, and I would just be, be curious, you know, Julia, how far in advance do you have to plan an event like this? It takes about four or five months of planning. And um, of course, it starts with the objectives, what we want to uh, focus on, what we want to um we want people to learn from this, what people are really looking to learn, and just a bit of um, research into what's, uh, what's um, pressing and then look for all the experts that can weigh in on the on the different topics and uh, reach out to them. And yeah, it takes um, it takes roughly about four to five months. And Ethan, in your experience, how how long does it take for one of these um, giant, you know, global CPG companies? How long does it take for them to make a shift in a product or deliver something to the shelves? What's the, what's the process? Uh, it depends Time on, frame. it depends on the data and resources they have available to them. There's been a real push to speed up the innovation process. Um, so, you know, people are trying to go from initial idea to on the shelves in six months, which is fast. Usually it takes a little longer. A smaller company can sometimes be a bit faster, but um, I think with more and more data available and the, just the push for innovation that's happening uh, much faster. I think to go back to that little discussion about normal, um, I, the, the etymology, like the origin of the word normal, it's very funny. It actually comes from a carpenter's square 
And so I just, I don't think normal is something we should want. I don't think we should want to be square. I think that part of the opportunity here with the pandemic is to grasp this disruption to really make something new, to not just try, don't try to go back to normal. Normal wasn't that great in a lot of ways. Um, the pandemic has been even worse. Let's see if we can grasp this disruption uh, to innovate faster, to move faster, and actually create something new that hasn't been here before that would not be normal. Hopefully it doesn't become normal, but that we keep sort of growing and improving ecologically, socially, technology. Uh, I, I want it all to get better and better. I, I think normal's perhaps not the most accurate description of what it is people mean when they say they want to go back to that time. I do think um, one of the positives amidst so much of the just really terrible um, and heartbreaking, you know, loss and things that have happened over this time, one of the positives is for many people, companies, business, we have realized that we can do so many things that we thought we could not do. There are so many things that we are doing today from developing products or developing medicines or living a different way or having dinner with our families or, you know, spending more time outside. There are so many things that we are doing that a year and a half ago, collectively, we would have said that's impossible. We can't do that. I can't work that way. We can't live this way. So I think the one of the things that I hope will come out of this is that realization that there are so many things that are possible. You just have to do them. And I think now collectively, we also have a little bit more of flexibility and understanding um, when we say to each other, you know what, I'm not doing that, I'm doing this. Because, because, and we all understand what that because means. So I think uh, to point to both... Um, Julia and Ethan, it is a moment of great opportunity, I think, and there will be some really great creative new innovations that come out of this time, not just in food and science, but I think also in the arts and, and creative spaces and, uh, you know, industries, you know, creating new solutions or ways of doing business and things that um, will be a new time instead of before times or olden times or whatever we call the period before going into the future. Sure. And quick, if I could add something to that, um, even without uh, much um, ado with this, we've actually innovated a lot. If you think about it, the last time I was um, on your show, we were in um, Brooklyn in a small um, studio behind a restaurant. And today we're connecting uh, via uh, Zencaster and still doing the same thing, but in a more convenient way. I I don't have to take the train. I don't have to come into the city. The same thing with our conferences. Before the pandemic, we met in person, but uh, during the pandemic, we thought, okay, we need to do something different. What are the main things people want during uh, our conferences? People like connecting. They like networking. Apart from um, listening to the speakers, they want to network more. So we have to think creatively. How can we reproduce those uh, great experiences virtually and help people connect. And you know what? This year, we had the privilege of having uh, speakers from Sweden, from um, Israel, from different countries connect with us, connect with our audience because we're virtual. So we, exp we expanded from um, um, a national um, audience to an international audience, mainly because we're online and we've, uh, we can connect with, we have a larger reach. So bottom line is, when things like this happen, 
of course, um, there's the painful part of it, losing people. And um, there's also this part of it that we innovate, we think, we, um, we, we create, and we eventually find out that there's actually a better way of doing things or an easier and more convenient way of doing things. And, um, and that's, the, that's the beautiful part of the new reality or the new, um, the new normal that we have uh, in court. I use the word in court, not, not the literal. Ethan, we're going to task you with coming up with a new word to replace normal. Yes, I have to. I have Love to look for that. You, have a, you seem to have a good handle on language and origin and entomology. So get back <laughs> to us with, a, with some options that we can start to push out into the world to replace normal. Because that, uh, that just doesn't seem accurate. No, it's not what we're going for. And whether we no. figure out the word for it or not, we ain't going to be living it. Um, exactly. So, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, I want to thank uh, Julia Oluwanyu from the Food Niche Tech Summit for coming on and Ethan Soliev from How Good. Uh, Two really interesting entities. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you should definitely check out the summit, which is May 26th to May 27th later this month. It's virtual, so you can definitely attend. I want to thank all the listeners, the sponsors of this show. I want to thank Matt Patterson, who is our engineer, DJ Uptown Nico, who wrote our theme song, which is called Nomada CPU Track. Tech Bytes is on the air every week since 2015. We look at the intersection of food and technology. The show is hosted and produced by me, Jennifer Leutzi. We are powered by Simplecast and we record on Zencaster. If you love the show, come back and see us again. Find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Subscribe, leave a great review. And if you really want, really, really want to make sure we keep having these conversations out in the world, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, and make a donation. Maybe give us what you will spend on coffee today when you're out and about in the world. If you designate your Donation to Tech Bytes, I will send you a gift along with my undying love. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.